guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on our 18th episode. And today we have a very special guest on the show, and her name is Dr. Gabrielle Fundero. Now, Gabrielle has a PhD in human nutrition, foods, and exercise, as well as a Bachelor of Science in exercise, sport, and health education. Gabrielle is also a coach at Renaissance Periodization, and she's made a name for herself in the health and fitness industry as an evidence-based gut health professional. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show, Gabrielle. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's uh, really, really awesome to get you on because, yeah, we're both Masters of Dietetic students at the moment, and gut health has always been a bit of a interest area and passion of ours, so we can't wait to delve into some questions. But before we start that, we would just like to know a bit a bit more about you, what's going on at the moment, um, how you got involved with RP Strength and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I love telling this story because I, um, you know, as we were talking about uh, before we started recording, um, I have made a pretty significant career change. Um, so currently, I am a Renaissance Periodization Coach, as you mentioned. Uh, I also perform independent consulting through Vitamin PhD Nutrition um, that's focused on, on really coaching for digestive concerns um, and weight management uh, using any diet uh, that a person might feel comfortable with, you know, that they've already adopted. So it really helps with sort of the motivation and adherence side of things. Um, I uh, have had the great pleasure of being able to travel quite a bit with Renaissance Periodization to deliver seminars uh, around the world, and we'll be doing that more this coming year. Um, just uh, We just put out the RP Diet Book 2.0, and I've written a gut health section on that, and I'm also writing another book that's going to be the, the big book of, of gut science uh, with RP. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying, uh, you know, bringing some more... Uh, factual information to the field because there's there's a great deal of I think confusion and conflation of of data and whatnot so I'm really happy to be doing that um, and before this I was an assistant professor for about four years uh, of exercise science and taught primarily sport nutrition and anatomy and physiology and and some of the uh, introductory exercise science courses um, but my background, um, though I was in, I was in the Department of Human Nutrition, Foods, and Exercise. Uh, the topic of my dissertation was actually on the gut microbiome, um, probiotics specifically, and human metabolism. So um, really, it was sort of that I, I took a brief, um, you know, change of direction when I went um, from my doctoral studies to becoming an assistant professor, and now I've, I've been able to really get back to my roots. Um, of, you know, my dissertation research and get back into the realm of, of gut health or gut science, as I like to say, since gut health is, is sort of um, being uh, abused a little bit as yeah. a term. <laughs> Great. And before we kickstart off the question, so we have some listener questions today. I guess our listener base, some of them are nutrition students like us and some of them are people who are, want to learn more about the gut and nutrition in general and fitness. So we thought we would um, kickstart it by just asking you, what is a healthy gut and what is the microbiome as well? Oh, those are good questions. So I'll start by explaining um, the microbiome first. So the microbiome, uh, this word often is used sort of interchangeably with microbiota, uh, but they actually mean two different things. So the microbiota refer to all of the microorganisms that inhabit your gastrointestinal tract. Uh, it's primarily bacteria, 
but we also have some archaea. Uh, we also have some viruses and we have some fungi in there as well. They number in the bacteria number in the the tens of trillions. If you were to put them all in a bucket, they'd weigh um, actually a couple kilograms altogether. So it's quite a bit of biomass uh, wow. existing in there. Yeah, I know it, it's it really is a, an ecosystem within your gastrointestinal tract. And the microbiome refers to all of the genetic material that belongs to those microorganisms. Now, uh, you know, when this started to become a hot topic, they used to say that you're more bacteria or more microbe than you are human because, you know, the, the cells outnumber your human cells 100 to 1. But actually, when you look at all of the human cells of the body, when you look at blood cells and everything like that, we're about one to one. Our ratio is about one to one uh, microbe to human cell. But the amount of genetic material that is contained in there, the genes that they have vastly outnumber uh, the genes that we have as humans. So when we think about the, you know, the, the gut microbiome, I think because people, uh, I think because it's, it seems small because it's encased within our bodies that we think that it's a small and, and that, you know, we have a lot of it figured out and we can influence it ways. But as a matter of fact, um, our knowledge of the field is really in its infancy. And there are very few things that we can say conclusively uh, about the microbiome and its relationship to, to human health. So when we try to define gut health, that is actually a very difficult thing to do. And when you try to define a healthy uh, microbiome, well, there actually is no specific profile for a healthy microbiome. And when we look at the microbiomes or the microbiota of individuals from around the world, um, because we've characterized this in, in what we consider to be healthy controls in places like Japan and Korea, um, areas in Africa, the United States, that they are actually significantly different. Even though they're all considered to be healthy, they don't look the same. And so what becomes more important really is not which bacteria or which microorganisms are present, but the relative abundances of those microorganisms. But even in that case, when we look at an, an individual who has something like an inflammatory bowel disease or, or, or colorectal cancer um, or other various diseases associated with mental health, we find that they may all have different uh, profiles from what we consider to be a healthy control and have different profiles one, from one another. So just like we can't specifically characterize a healthy uh, microbiome, we can't specifically characterize dysbiosis, which is sort of our term for um, an unhealthy microbiome. So um, that's that's sort of my my not answer to that because we actually can't we can't characterize what's healthy or unhealthy. Um, you know, of course, we can look at. Um, the presence of uh, an overabundance of specific pathogens, and that could be problematic. And we can also look at the function of the gut. You know, if, if, if an individual is experiencing a lot of gas and bloating and constipation or diarrhea, or if they have an inflammatory bowel disease, um, you know, those are a little bit easier to point out as well. That's, you know, an aberrance from, from health. But um, once again, you know, trying to say like, oh, this specific bacteria is a causative factor, um, that's very hard to do in most cases. Mm. Yeah, I find that really interesting because I guess a lot of the medical field and health and fitness industry, they want to sort of label something as either healthy or not healthy. Mm -hmm. And with the gut, I guess there's a big gray area and not just a simple right and wrong. So. Yeah, I remember even when we were going through our studies a few years ago and, you know, they were just touching on the gut microbiome in 
various lectures and they were talking about a balance between bacteria deities and firmicutes. Um, and you know, they couldn't really conclusively say, you know, you want this exact balance between these two. And they were almost hesitant to call one good and one bad. So we kind of just moved on to another topic. We didn't go into too much depth (laughs) on that. (laughs) I think the lecture was just trying to be safe. (laughs) That's a good, that's actually an excellent approach, really. I think they were ahead of their time because back, you know, (laughs) when I was still in grad school, the, it was the bacteroidetes to firmicutes ratio that was considered to be, you know, the, the, the sign, if you had too many firmicutes, that was obesogenic. And um, I've said this before that that's like saying vertebrates cause pollution. It's, it's, you know, when we look at the levels of, of taxonomy, it's so general that it's not even, we can't even approach anything, you know, about that being accurate. Yeah, exactly. And um, I also just wanted to touch on, because we might mention these terms later in the podcast, prebiotics and probiotics. Mm. Would you be able to just explain for the listeners the difference between prebiotics and probiotics? Yes. So a probiotic is an organism that can confer a benefit to the host that may be a bacteria, but in some cases we actually have probiotic yeasts. And a prebiotic is a substance that those microorganisms can use for energy. So a prebiotic, uh, an example of that would be uh, fiber. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, so I guess now we will dive straight into the listener questions. And the very first one is talking about the carnivore diet. Mm -hmm. And it says, can you please explain how the carnivore diet influences the gut microbiome? and in comparison to a diet high in plant matter. Yes. Now, something similar to this was actually done in humans some years ago. There was a five-day dietary intervention where they compared a plant-based diet to an animal-based diet. And they found that um, there were significant changes in the main bacterial taxa or groups of bacteria present. And no surprise, just like, you know, if we change the energy availability within an ecosystem, um, some organisms will be able to adapt to that and some will die off, that we found an increased abundance of bacteria that are good at metabolizing amino acids and an increase uh, in in the individuals who had more of an animal-based diet. Um, And then in the individuals who had more of a plant-based diet, they saw increases of bacteria that are good at metabolizing uh, carbohydrates. But what was what what needs to be pointed out also is that when we look at you know large observational studies and when we look at interventions in mice and when we look at uh, ketogenic style diets in humans, that uh, removal of plant matter from the diet leads to an overall decrease in diversity of the microbiota. And if we want to say that something is synonymous with gut health, it would be probably diversity. So that means that we have uh, the right amount of bacteria. So we want to have a, a robust number of bacteria and we want to have um, a diverse um, or, or a, a wide representation of different species of bacteria as well. And we want to have a relative abundance of mostly bacteria that are probably not pathogenic and fewer of those that could be pathogenic. And so part of the problem with eating something like the carnivore diet, where you're not having any plant matter, is that you are reducing the food availability of specific bacteria that require carbohydrates. 
Now those bacteria can then use some of the carbohydrates that are found in the uh, protective mucus layer of your intestines. That's problematic because now they are starting to degrade that protective mucus layer um, and we need that. Um, or they may actually just die off. And that's problematic because many of the bacteria that ferment fiber, dietary fiber, produce beneficial compounds like short-chain fatty acids uh, like butyrate, which is uh, an energy source for the colon, for the, for the colon cells, for the colonocytes, um, and helps to maintain intestinal barrier uh, function and integrity. Uh, may also play a role in appetite regulation, insulin sensitivity. So overall, um, the carnivore diet is really not pro-gut health. It was really the antithesis of everything that we would recommend to increase the diversity of your microbiome and to increase beneficial bacteria. The carnivore diet is the opposite of that. So the carnivore diet arguably would not have a positive effect on the gut. Mm, and uh, like you just said before, the diversity within the gut can change within just a matter of days. So I can imagine it would be very problematic, especially if someone attempted a diet such as the carnivore diet for a very short period of time and then tried to go back to a plant matter diet because they would have um, lost a lot of that bacteria responsible for digesting carbohydrates and fiber as well. So you'd probably run into a lot of issues there too, swapping, trying to swap between the two. Mm -hmm. And many people who switch to the carnivore diet initially, you know, they experience a lot of diarrhea uh, because the fiber helps to create bulk in the stool. Now, in some cases, they might, they might find that that recedes and then, you know, they have fairly low um, stool volume um, because our, our feces are not made entirely of fiber. We actually, you know, some of it are, uh, uh, some proportion of the feces is dead cells, whether that's bacterial cells or our own cells. So we can still produce feces even with with no fiber in the diet. Um, but you know, just the quality of the feces is not always indicative of what's going on in the gut in terms of the microbiota. Um, and, and people do often find that yes, when they reintroduce carbohydrates thereafter, that they may have additional gastrointestinal distress, um, because of changes of the bacterial taxa present. And so, um, we may, so, so when we think about dietary carbohydrates, we have some that we can digest as humans, we have digestive enzymes for those, um, and others that bacteria can only digest, but the, 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 the carbohydrates that are digestible to us are also digestible to the bacteria. And so when we sort of starve them for a while and then refeed them, they may, um, sort of sort of <laughs> eat in abundance and produce a, a great deal of gas, which can lead to mm -hmm. gastrointestinal distress. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I definitely would not suggest trying to go back and forth um, between these two. Uh, I would I would probably I would suggest just don't don't do the carnivore diet in the first <laughs> place. Um, you know, unless it's some people do it as sort of a, an elimination diet. Um, but that needs to be done in a systematic way with, with some structure to the way that you're reintroducing foods. You know, those, there's, there's really no need, even though you may by chance improve your GI function, um, or comfort by removing every food that could possibly cause a problem. Um, if you never then test what foods you can tolerate, then you're going to end up with a very restrictive diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that is wonderful advice. <laughs> So we'll move on to the next question, which is, is there any evidence to show that the gut microbiome is linked to mental health? 
Um, yes, yes. And the problem is just that the evidence is not mechanistically clear. Um, now, there was a study that was just published, and I had it probably four people send it to me, where um, individuals uh, with autism spectrum uh, disorder had been given a, a fecal transplant, a fecal microbiome transplant. So that's one way that we um, can, well, it was, it's one way that we can study the microbiome in mice, but it actually is a therapy that's been used for the treatment of C. difficile, which is a really virulent um, hospital-associated infection. And um, so these individuals were followed for the span of two years and did see improvements in symptoms, but the problem was there was no control group. So mm -hmm. there's no way to determine whether that was a result of the fecal microbiome transplant or simply the result of time. Um, and so it's unfortunate that, you know, I think a lot of people are, are sort of putting the, the, the cart before the horse thinking that we have a treatment for something when we really don't understand um, the mechanisms by which it's operating. Yeah. Now, in, in mice, we've been able to induce changes in behavior through fecal transplants. Uh, and in some cases, it's, it's actually, it's quite interesting when you look at the personalities of mice, uh, they actually differ based on the strain of mouse that you're using and what lab you're taking it from. So, Researchers have actually transplanted the microbiota of um, anxious mice into germ-free mice or taken the, you know, more well-behaved mice and taken their microbiota and transplanted into the more anxious or aggressive mice. And they do see behavioral changes. But the problem is that the behavioral changes aren't consistent over time. And even though we may see quite often it's shared that, you know, oh, this, this one strain became more social. In some cases, the transplant leads them to be less social or they want to be around other mice or they don't want to be around other mice or their maze tests results are different. Um, their, their depression markers are different in terms of, you know, their um, the water, their, their swim tests and things like that. So it's not that we see consistent characteristic changes. We just see changes. Mm. So it's not enough, I think, to, you know, really determine what's going on. Uh, another thing that I see cited often is that um, the the bacteria in the gut are capable of producing serotonin, and uh, a majority of the serotonin in our bodies is produced in the gut, and that is true. But the serotonin in the gut, that gut-derived serotonin, does not cross the blood-brain barrier, and so it's not going to be um, a neuroactive uh, neurotransmitter. It plays an important role in gut motility, and so it could certainly play a role in something like irritable bowel syndrome, uh, but it's not foreseeably going to be able to change mood. So mm. I think that there's just, you know, there's a great deal of, of confusion there. Now yeah. there is, you know, there's a connection between the brain and the gut via the vagus nerve, which is the, the, it runs most of the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. So that's our sort of our rest and digest branch of the autonomic nervous system. And there is bi-directional communication there. So that means that the gut and the brain communicate to one another. And there's a lot of evidence that the bacteria can produce uh, compounds that may interact with our endocannabinoid system. So there's definitely a connection, but I think that if we get ahead of ourselves and think that we know more than we do and, you know, we can treat things, we may actually miss, you know, the, the, the data that we need to, to collect first. Mm. So I, I guess this question, again, like you just alluded to, there may not be an answer for it, but what would you hypothesize to be the reason why, you know, when someone eats a nutrient-rich diet and they, people say, you know, eat good, feel good, 
What's your hypothesis there for when you generally eat nutrient-rich foods? Why do you just feel good? Well, I mean, in most cases, when people are choosing to eat nutrient-rich foods, they're often engaging in an overall lifestyle that is either, um, you know, habitually health promoting, like they're exercising, they're spending time with loved ones, they're doing things that have been shown to improve mental health, or they, if it's a, if it's a lifestyle change, they may be coming from a place of less self-care to a place of more self-care, you know, with eating a more nutrient-rich diet and exercising and things like that. So I think, you know, in the same way that if we speak kindly about ourselves and spend time with people that we love and do things that we enjoy, when we make choices about food that we feel are aligned with our values and our goals, um, we feel mentally better. And of course, we will feel physically better, too, in terms of, you know, digestion being improved if we're um, reducing foods that that are really heavy and um you know high and and i'm not demonizing any foods but you know if you've switched from uh, a diet that's very high in say like fast foods so those are high in refined carbohydrates and high in fats and together sometimes those things can cause gastric distress if you then switch to a, a food a, a, a diet that is high in whole grains and lean proteins and things are, are digesting more easily and you have better appetite control, um, you know, those obviously can contribute to better physical feelings as well. So I really think that, you know, there's a physical aspect to it, of course, but, you know, the mental aspect is not just, uh, you know, a food feels the microbiome and then the microbiome makes you feel better, but just overall, you know, there are cognitive processes there um, playing an important role as well. Mm. And I think you also just busted a bit of a myth earlier when you said that the serotonin doesn't actually cross the blood-brain barrier because a lot of people think that the serotonin produced in the gut is, I guess, utilized by the brain. Right, right. And they actually, the, the production of those two pools are actually regulated by two separate enzymes. Um, so it's just that they're, you know, it. It's sort of like if you look at, you know, where we find similar ingredients, you know, just because we have eggs in several different recipes, that doesn't mean that the eggs are going to um, serve the same purpose in each one of those recipes. It's the same mm. thing with the serotonin. You know, it obviously is a, a neurotransmitter in the brain that regulates not just positive feelings, but a number of other important processes as well. So it's not just like the feel good neurotransmitter, um, you know, where it depends on where it is being active in the brain. And then in the gut, it helps to regulate those wave like contractions, peristalsis to, to, you know, move food through. And it also plays a role in perhaps in nutrient partitioning um, during fasting as well. But um, yeah, they're, you know, two, two totally different purposes, even though structurally they're the same. It's really not about the structure of whatever is binding. It's really about the target tissue that's being bound. That really dictates the activity of whatever that ligand is. Mm. And you spoke before about lifestyle factors, especially you alluded to exercise. And I remember we were speaking off air and you were talking about how you're very interested in how exercise actually influences the gut. So could you please touch more on that? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so this is really one of my favorite areas and it's, it's very new. Um, I think it's safe to say that I've read every article possible on, on the human microbiome and exercise because there aren't that many, so it's not a great feat. Um, 
But what we find, um, there, there are a few things that, and again, this is just emerging, but there are a few things that we find fairly consistently um, in individuals who are physically active. Um, one is that diversity of the microbiomes of the microbiome uh, correlates with physical activity. So the more physical activity a person performs and the more physically fit a person is, generally the more diverse their microbiome. Um, in addition to that, we see that there's specific enrichment of specific uh, of, of certain taxa that produce butyrate, which is that beneficial short chain fatty acid that I had mentioned earlier. Now, there are a couple interesting things that we that I've seen both in in mouse and in human literature that we seem to be more responsive to physical activity to exercise um, if we're younger. So older individuals and older mice don't seem to have a microbiome that's as either diverse or as responsive to exercise. Um, and also that there are change, there are differences in how lean versus obese individual microbiomes will respond to exercise. So it seems that the, if an individual is lean, their microbiome may respond uh, more effectively to exercise. But that's really based on just a couple of studies. And there are some studies that show that exercise does not cause any change to at least the profile of the microbiome in terms of who's there. But we can look at the microbiome in two different ways. We can look at the microbiota, who is there, and we can also look at the microbiome, uh, what genes are there, what's actually being expressed. And we don't know really anything about the functional changes, so what those bacteria and what those microbes are actually doing. But it does appear that there are some acute functional changes that occur even after a single bout of exercise. But the other significant limitation is that this has been done for the most part in individuals who are endurance athletes. Mm -hmm. um, so we really don't know what's going on with resistance training because we're looking primarily at um, competitive cyclists, uh, rugby players, and of course they're going to be intermittent athletes with, you know, they're going to be, you know, undergoing some resistance training. Um, and then both mice and humans um, who are undergoing like a, you know, an, an eight week um, endurance training protocol where they're running on a treadmill or something. Uh, one thing that I do like to point out um, for people who are, are trainers um, especially is that if you put a mouse on a treadmill and you force it to run by shocking it when it doesn't, that it actually sees um, increased markers of inflammation without the uh, added, without the, without the increase of beneficial microbes. So I tell mm. people, you know, if you really hate running or, you know, your client hates running, maybe don't force them to do that on a treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one more reason to not do cardio, I guess. But... <laughs> <laughs> like we needed more reasons. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But yeah, that's. I actually can't wait to see even more research um, and evidence come out in that field because, yeah, I think everyone just looks straight towards what you're eating for gut health, yeah. but obviously there's two sides to a coin. So, mm -hmm. mm. Yep. so yeah, um, with the next question, this is one I'm quite interested in as well, and it's sort of a two-part question. Mm -hmm. So is there any evidence to support that consumption of high amounts of plant-based foods, um, such as in a vegan diet, so lots of fiber, could contribute to digestive issues and impair nutrient absorption? Oh, um, so I think they're probably talking about some of the anti-nutrients and things like that, um, phytates and lectins and things. 
Yeah. Um, now, there is certainly an upper limit for fiber. So we usually recommend a fiber intake of about 25 to 40 grams per day, lower end for females, higher for males. Um, and it looks like the, the upper limit of fiber would be about 70 grams per day. Uh, I have actually heard from some people that they are taking in more than 70 grams per day, even upwards. I have one person tell me he was eating about 100 grams of fiber per day and was experiencing extreme bloating and gastric distress. And um, so, yeah, so that was not a surprise. And I, my recommendation, which is the antithesis of what I would normally say, was you really need to eat less fiber. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, absolutely. Because that fiber is fermented, in some cases it's going to be uh, fermented to short-chain fatty acids, um, not just butyrate, but also propionate um, and, and, uh, and acetate. But it can also be fermented to gas. So um, if we are producing a lot of gas, that can cause a few different things. Uh, if it's happening in the small intestine and causing a lot of distension in the small intestine, that can actually activate um, uh, pain receptors, and that causes us to have feelings of gastric distress and pain and bloating. Um, now, if it happens in the large intestine, usually the large intestine can handle that stretching and whatnot, but then, of course, we're experiencing a lot of flatulence, and that can be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, the gas can also change the uh, motility of the gut or the movement of the gut and, and inhibit proper transit of fecal matter, so that may delay transit for us. Um, and if we're producing a lot of those short-chain fatty acids, we can actually change the pH of the gut. And in some cases, uh, that can be good. We actually want it to be fairly acidic. It can be antimicrobial. But if it gets too acidic, especially if we're looking at the more distal ends of the small intestine and in the large intestine, we don't want it to be extremely acidic there. Part of the reason why we have such an abundant uh, ecosystem of bacteria there is because it's less acidic than what we see in the stomach and in the small intestine. So that could be problematic in terms of reducing, um, you know, numbers of bacteria that can't withstand the changes in pH. So certainly, yes, we can have too much fiber. Now, in terms of the anti-nutrients that are found in, in plant matter, the evidence really is it's not strong to show that in a normal diet that you'd run into um, you know, nutrient deficiencies due to the anti-nutrients found in plant foods, especially if we're processing them properly. So of course, if you're trying to eat like an unprocessed raw bean, it's going to be problematic. But once you've soaked the beans and you've cooked them, then that really reduces the content of, of the anti-nutrients. Um, additionally, if you are not subsisting off, you know, just one, like if your diet were 90% lentils, that might be an issue. And there have been, Jeez. you know, some, yeah, I, but there, there have been case studies where people have, you know, subsisted pretty much like their diet really is just 90% lentils. And then they run into nutrient absorption issues, you know, because of things like oxalates and whatnot. But yeah. as long as you're, you know, properly preparing your foods and eating a varied diet, there's no reason to believe, you know, based on the literature that we have now that, that's going to cause any sort of nutrient deficiency. Um, even though, you know, proponents of the carnivore diet will say like, oh, these plants contain all these anti-nutrients and cause inflammation and stuff like that. <laughs> They're out that. to kill you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, okay, arguably, yeah, plants don't really want to be eaten, but guess what? We've evolved as omnivores to be able to handle plant matter and animal matter, so. <laughs> 
And just on that topic, um, just putting this into practical terms, I'm wondering how you find a balance. So, for example, take a client, a male client who's in his improvement season, trying to put on some lean mass, and he has a very high caloric intake, somewhere between 4,000 to 5,000 calories. Mm -hmm. But um, he's a big advocate for, you know, very nutrient-rich foods. So, for example, a lot of his carbohydrate-containing foods will be very high in fiber, and he'll eat lots of fruits and eats lots of vegetables and legumes. How do you find a balance with a client who has a caloric intake that high? And if they are eating foods of this type, you know, their fiber intake will be well over 100 grams per day. How do you find a balance between trying to convince them, you know, perhaps you could consider eating slightly more refined foods? That is such a good question. And I think you could apply this to so many different scenarios too. How do you convince your client of something? Um, <laughs> so, so my answer to that is that no client will buy into something really unless they've decided on their own that it's a good idea. And so I really have to, you know, I would say I want to keep his goals and his values in mind. And if he is not having any gastrointestinal distress, then yeah, but that's, then there's nothing, there's not really a, you know, if it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like if he can mm -hmm. handle that level of fiber intake and that volume of food and he's fine with it, that's not a problem. If he does start to experience some gastrointestinal distress, then I think it's my role as a coach really to just inform him of what could be contributing to that gastrointestinal distress. And that way he knows at least, hey, it could be because I'm eating, you know, all of this fiber and all of these unprocessed foods. And then if he wants to know more, then I can provide some options for some foods that are you know, just slightly more processed versions of what he's eating that will be lower in fiber. So, you know, if, if he is having so, so much, um, you know, fruit and brown rice and things like that, maybe I can instead recommend, hey, what, would you feel comfortable eating rice cakes um, before you work out? Rice cakes, you know, still pretty minimally processed, but they're much lower in fiber. So I think it's very important that, you know, you, you inform your client and let them decide that they want to pursue that first and from there, then it's a recommendation that still is aligned with their values and their goals, but will help to, you know, mitigate some of the gastric distress. And it's and it's very common, you know, that I, I interact with people who don't want to use, you know, like a, a, a carbohydrate containing beverage like Gatorade or something. They want to eat a, a whole food source of carbohydrates. And so then it's not really going to be conducive for me to say like, well, no, you can't do that. You have to have Gatorade. No, instead, I'm going to provide information about foods that are low in fructose and high in glucose that will digest easily and be, you know, more of an ideal concentration of carbohydrate for them, because that is going to be meeting them halfway. You know, they're much more likely to do something like that, see the improvement and then, um, you know, feel better, which is the whole goal. Yeah. And that sort of leads into another one of the questions that we have, which is basically, um, what are the common foods that upset stomachs? And I guess our interpretation of this would be mainly the FODMAP containing foods. So the fructosaccharides, oligo, di, monosaccharides and polyols. Yes. Is that, is that the, so that's pretty much the general consensus at the moment? That, yeah, that seems to be, and, and because that is such a, that's such a large number of foods. Um, so just so that people are aware um, that is sort of, that's an umbrella term that covers a lot of also like the really most, the most common 
intolerance, so lactose intolerance. So lactose is a disaccharide, so that falls within the, the FODMAP umbrella. And so that's when, when people have dairy and then they feel gas and bloating and things like that and perhaps have some diarrhea. Um, that's due to the lack of the lactase enzyme that would normally break down that sugar. And so that sugar then is instead metabolized by the bacteria who can produce gas. Mm. Um, so this is really one of the most, um, it seems to be very effective. It's very well supported in the literature. It's one that I use with my clients who have gastric distress, um, but seems to be a really great intervention for people who have irritable bowel syndrome. Um, because it's, you know, while we do have that initial elimination phase that's very restrictive, the whole idea is moving toward a, a determining your tolerance of the specific groups of FODMAPs in terms of which ones you can tolerate and then how much of each of those foods you can tolerate. Because we don't want to eliminate FODMAPs. They're very beneficial. They're prebiotic fibers. So I talked about the, the definition of prebiotic. They're, they, they feed the good bacteria in the gut. Mm. So we don't want to eliminate them entirely. Instead, we just have to determine how much we can eat of each one. Now, some of the most common foods that, that most people really have to limit to a significant extent I would say are would be onions and garlic. Those would be two that that cause people great gastric distress. They contain a fiber called inulin. Now, inulin is often used as an additive in a lot of sort of health foods, and they label it as chicory root fiber or just chicory root extract or just chicory root. You may see it as inulin as well, but that's another one that very commonly causes gastric distress. Like people eat um, fiber bars and things like that, the fiber one bars. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that will cause gas and bloating. Um, fructose, uh, there is fructose malabsorption, so people can experience fructose malabsorption, um, but that's not really so much of a syndrome as it is if you take in too much fructose on its own because of the way it's transported out of the lumen of the intestines, um, sometimes it can, it's just very slow and it can just kind of hang out in there for a while. And that can both pull water into the gut and also it can be metabolized by the uh, bacteria and then um, cause gas. So that's another one that I, I usually recommend people limit fructose, especially around workouts, um, because that's when we see a lot more uh, incidences of gastric distress. And then the rest of them, you know, it, it really depends on the client. I've seen people react to apples, bananas, um, uh, dairy for sure. Um, some people are sensitive to um, uh, honey is, is the test for fructose. Um, and, and so it really depends on the person. I haven't seen anything really much more consistent than uh, lactose and then garlic and onions. Um, mm -hmm. So it really is person person dependent. And that's the whole, that's the beauty of doing the whole FODMAP process is that you can determine, you know, which foods you, you tolerate well, um, and then which foods you might want to limit. Yeah. yeah. And I guess nowadays we see a lot more people as well who diagnose themselves, even when they don't have any symptoms, which yeah. is really just limiting their diversity of fibers. Yeah. So. And I think it's important to emphasize that the FODMAP diet isn't like it is a short term trial. You know, you don't eliminate FODMAPs chronically. You just test out what you can tolerate and what you can't. And then you go back into a normal way of eating. So I think a lot of people make the mistake of saying I'm on a low FODMAP diet and they like they infer that as if they're eating low FODMAPs for life. Right. 
<laughs> and I think this ties in nicely to the next question, which is related to artificial sweeteners and sugar alcohols, because I'm aware that um, sugar alcohols are often in categorized in the FODMAPs as polyols. Yes. But this question is asking, why do some people, they can tolerate sweeteners such as stevia, but they can't tolerate other artificial sweeteners or sugar alcohols such as mannitol and sorbitol? Mm. Um, that's a good question. So our common, um, the polyols that we see, we have sorbitol, mannitol, and erythritol. Now, we actually find sorbitol and mannitol in plenty of fruits and vegetables. And I don't see that as quite as common of an issue. Um, now, I, I, well, I, in sorbitol, I have seen that in, in a few people that have reacted to sorbitol. Um, so like apples, which seem really innocuous, will set them off. Um, or, or avocados. But um, erythritol is one that is commonly used in a lot of diet beverages and, and diet ice creams and things like that. And so part of it is just, you know, due to the differences in structures of the sugar alcohols, some of them will, will be more rapidly fermented and will cause more gastric distress. Um, so in most cases, like people can probably handle a little bit more mannitol than they can erythritol, for example. Now, when we look at um, sugar, the, the non-nutritive sweeteners, so, so sugar alcohols are considered to be nutritive. So even though they contain less, uh, you know, fewer calories estimated than, um, than nutritive carbohydrates, they still contain some, maybe about two to four calories per gram, whereas other carbs are four calories per gram. But mm. because they can be fermented to short chain fatty acids, we're not really sure, you know, what is happening with that because it's estimated that that can increase your energy availability from the diet anywhere from six to 15%. Um, so wow. I just, yeah, I say, you know, just count them like, just count them like carbs. <laughs> That's my <laughs> recommendation. Um, but when, when we look at the non-nutritive sweeteners, things like aspartame, um, saccharin, sucralose, acesulfame, um, those do not contain calories, um, although they may be cut with something like dextrose. So if you ate like tons and tons and tons of it, the dextrose would have calories. But those uh, are usually actually well tolerated because they're not going to be metabolized by the bacteria and have a pretty minimal effect um, if any, on the microbiome. Mm. And can you just touch on, because some people say, you know, they avoid artificial sweeteners because they think that it spikes insulin in the same way that glucose and carbohydrates would. Can you just bust that myth for us, please? Yes, yes. Um, well, that's not the case. Um, just tasting something sweet will not um, cause an, an increase in insulin. Um, that's a receptor-mediated uh, event. And so we actually need to have an increase in blood glucose for that to happen or, or, uh, circulating amino acids. But, um, yeah, so, so I think that's just a, one of those pervasive myths that, oh, if you taste something sweet, it causes insulin secretion. Now there were studies in, um, rodents and in humans that looked at the effects of sucralose on insulin sensitivity. And they did find that um, in rodents that occurred, if they had super physiological doses, so like stuff that humans would never even consume, so that's sort of a moot point, and that's usually what we see with, you know, rodent feeding studies. So when we look at what happens in humans, 
perhaps about one in 100 people may actually see a change in insulin sensitivity if they're consuming a high amount of, of artificial sweeteners like saccharin or sucralose or the two that, that were tested. If they are, you know, looking at the, the effects on the microbiome, there was one study that looked at the effects of uh, the acceptable daily intake of saccharin on the microbiome. And in about, I think it was 40% of participants, um, they, they saw changes in the microbiome, but that stopped as soon as they stopped ingesting that level of saccharin. So once again, you know, there's a dose dependence there. Most people are not consuming the acceptable daily intake level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just the individual, you know, some people reacted to it and some people didn't. When we look at aspartame, it seems to have pretty much no effect on the microbiome and it has the highest acceptable daily intake level. So like something, I, I've calculated it for myself. I think I would need to have something like um, 38 packets a day to reach mm-hmm. my maximum acceptable daily intake level. And I use maybe six, so I'm okay with that. Um, and, and you know, when we look at some of the old tests on things like cancer risk and things like that. It's just, we cannot extrapolate from these super physiological doses in mice to say that the same thing would happen in humans. Certainly we need more, you know, testing done on the microbiome. Um, but as of right now, there's nothing, um, that's, that's really stood out to me in, in terms of the recent literature. And when we look at, you know, what really matters, um, do people then become diabetic? Do they become obese when they drink these sweeteners? No, uh, the, the, the most recent systematic analysis that just came out showed that same thing that we've seen consistently, when you remove a sugar sweetened beverage and replace it with a non-nutritive sweetener, it actually improves your ability to manage your weight because you are reducing your caloric intake. And even if we do see that, you know, perhaps circulating insulin levels are, are a little bit higher, well, the recent diet bet study that just came out showed that circulating insulin levels actually don't matter for weight loss. So... <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I'm sure that the listeners are really going to appreciate that. Oh, well, you know, to, I will be the first to tell you, I like to use aspartame. So I use my, <laughs> my six packets a day. That's, you know, in my oatmeal and my coffee. And um, you're going to have to pry it for my cold, dead hands after I yeah, die of same. aspartame poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love saccharin. I'm always putting it in my coffees too. <laughs> Yep, yep. So, and the next question is actually about some gut health supplements. So, in Australia, we have a few companies, I'm not going to name them, but uh, things like supplements called Gut Right and just, yeah, supplements in general to promote gut health. I'm not sure which ones you have in the US, but we're sort of just wanted to hear your thoughts on those and are some better than others or are they effective at all? Yeah, what are the common ingredients that manufacturers put into these gut health supplements? Oh man, well, a lot of nonsense. Um, <laughs> I would say the, um, I'm actually writing a, a piece slowly on greens powders, um, looking at uh, you know the effect of digestive enzymes and various probiotic blends on gut microbiome and gut health in general. Um, So I'd say the the most common ingredients would be some blend of probiotics, some blend of digestive enzymes, um, perhaps collagen, um, perhaps glutamine, and then usually some blend of, you know, some herbal uh, ingredients like licorice, um, 
I'm trying to think of what else, but, but herbal ingredients that, you know, or peppermint, things like that, that have sort of anecdotally helped with, um, with gastric distress. So, you know, in terms of, do we have randomized control trials that show that these specific things are doing, you know, these specific products are working? No. So the next best thing then is to look at the randomized control trials and systematic analyses and things of the ingredients that they contain. And so that's the, 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 the direction that I take. So when we look at blends of probiotics, what can be problematic there is that probiotic effects are strain specific. So that means that, you know, you can have many different strains of lactobacilli, but they're not all going to do the same thing just because it's all lactobacilli. Um, the same thing goes with bifidobacteria. Um, so they're strain specific. The things that they can actually help with are pretty limited. So we're looking at diarrhea, constipation, um, perhaps, um, irritable bowel disease, if we're looking at like VSL-3, which is a, one of the more powerful and actually effective ones. But taking a kitchen sink probiotic um, is really just sort of a waste of money. You don't know what, you know, dosage you're going to get because often it's a proprietary blend. And if you're taking a bunch of things and you don't have any gastrointestinal distress at all, well, now you're just taking a bunch of things for nothing. Uh, now, there's some evidence that people are resistant to probiotics. That means that they don't enrich at all. So you're literally just pooping away your money. Uh, there's also some indication that um, lactobacilli may impede the reestablishment of your native biome if you take it after a bout of antibiotics. Uh, and in individuals who are on um, chronic antacids, they may actually be at greater risk of developing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth um, associated with probiotic supplementation. So it's not something that you, you know, really need to be spending money on if you're, if you're not having any issues. And if you are having issues, you need to take the specific one. Mm. When it comes to digestive enzymes, uh, in most cases, those enzymes have a specific pH of activity. And if we are, we stray out of that pH or out of that acidic, uh, acidity level, they become denatured or they lose their shape. And so when we're looking at these lists of, of digestive enzymes that have an ideal pH of about six, they may exist in your mouth. And then once they hit your stomach acid, hydrochloric acid, pH of one to two, they're denatured. They're not going to have any activity um, past that. So not useful in that respect. Um, I don't know why collagen is so popular right now. I think it's just been popularized <laughs> by a few yeah. like chiropractors. And, and, and it has it has a biological value of like zero. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. Yes, I tell people this, it has like, no essential amino acids, it's a bunch of glycine, it is poorly digested, poorly bioavailable, um, super expensive, and there's no data on its effect in the gut. There, I, in, in, I, I take that back, there was one on weaning fetal piglets and, oh. <laughs> you know, and minimal effects at that. So really no basis for using collagen and, and even just physiologically, I'm not sure why there's such a, a craze over this. I mean, you get those amino acids from anything else in your diet. So that's another one that's useless. Um, glutamine is really only advised in individuals who have an inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or colitis that are having, that are experiencing actual trauma um, due to the, to, to the autoimmune disease, that that may be beneficial for those colonocytes to use as energy. But once again, in, in many cases, they're not, they're NPO, like they're, they're not going to be ingesting food. And so, um, you know, they may be deficient, whereas people who are eating food, glutamine is 
like the most common non-essential amino acid that we have. Like you're not going to run out of glutamine, so you don't need to supplement. Um, so yeah, I think those are, those are the biggest ones. Now in terms of, you know, the herbal additions, um, really weak evidence that, you know, even like the pure, I guess, extracts of those would do anything. Um, but once again, you don't know how much you're getting in that supplement and, um, there's they, they, and, and I really don't think that they should even be able to make claims like improves digestion or improves gut health, because guess what? Like I mentioned earlier, we don't have a definition for gut health. And I think that's probably why they can make that claim because it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. yeah I'm always questioning the regulations around these things, how, um, products are always making these claims, but there is no strong evidence to back them up. Yeah. And, you know, it may be different. Um, in the U.S., we have two regulatory bodies that um, oversee labeling, um, but they it's sort of retroactively. So the, the Federal Trade Commission can regulate statements made on labels like, you know, the, we can't claim to cure, treat or prevent a disease, but you can say something kind of general like that, like, oh, mm. you know, it, um, maintains healthy digestion because that's such a, a nonsensical, you know, amorphous term. Um, but the FDA, our Food and Drug Administration, does actually crack down on um, on manufacturers who are, you know, making claims that are um, too too hyperbolic or, you know, their their labels are inaccurate and things like that. But it's it's just retroactive. I mean, the stuff goes on the market. And by that point, I think it's just kind of too late. You know, people are already buying into it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, Gabrielle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Like Jack and I have really enjoyed you spending um, spending time with you today. And our very final question for you, one that we ask all of our guests, is one interesting thing that you learned this week. And this doesn't have to be related to health or nutrition. It can be related to absolutely anything. Uh, I would say, <laughs> um, I learned about the process of buying a house. <laughs> I just, That's I important. Just, yes, I am um, a first time home buyer. And so that was um, in the past couple weeks, that's been sort of consuming my spare time. Um, so now I'm, you know, well versed in, in that whole process of, uh, you know, buying a house. And thankfully, I my partner is amazing. And he's been kind of heading the whole thing because uh, I was out of the out of the state and whatnot while we were doing all this. But um, it's quite a, a stressful but exciting process. So now I feel like I'm maybe like 10% more grown up. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I guess, yeah, it's a skill that everyone needs, I guess, so eventually. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And before we wrap up, where can people find you on social media as well? Oh, yeah. So um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook as Vitamin PhD. Uh, my website is vitaminphdnutrition.com. I have all of my um, blog posts, my podcasts, my, my uh, articles that I've written are on there. Um, links to tickets for my upcoming seminars are there as well. Um, so I encourage people to reach out, you know, if you're interested in, in, um, video coaching, if you've got digestive issues and things like that, I'm happy to, um, chat with folks and, uh, keep an eye out for, uh, the upcoming RP, uh, gut science book. And if you want a little teaser, check out the RP diet book 2.0. 
Great. Thank you so much. All right. So, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Vitamin PhD, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians, tag Jack and myself, and we will catch you in the next episode. Thanks. See you guys.